and welcome to this month's episode of Silver Divorce, How to Simplify a Painful Process. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, producer of the show for amazing Peter Neuwirth, an author and actuary who is trying to make this process not so horrifying. And today our guest is going to do just the same. She is Lily Vasilev a divorce financial expert, author of Money and Divorce, The Essential Roadmap to Mastering Financial Decisions. Like, who doesn't need that? She is a specialist in matrimonial litigation, a divorce financial specialist analyst, and the president of the Wealth Protection Management Organization based in Greenwich, Connecticut. Lily is also the president of the National Association of Divorce Financial Planners. How amazing is that? She's a trained mitigator, collaborative financial specialist, and qualified litigation expert. She trains divorce professionals in a collaborative process because, you know, as my book, Why Divorce Says, never cut what you can untie. She is also a nationally recognized expert, practitioner, speaker, and teaches financial topics regularly at the New York City Bar Association. So I'm going to stop talking and throw it over to our amazing host, Peter Neuer to interview Lily. Take it away, Pete. Well, thanks a lot, Hope. And Lily, welcome. And I'm so thrilled that, you, you know, that you're here to join me. And, you know, I've, I've been looking at this stuff and it looks like you're doing pretty much what I would love to do, but you've been doing it successfully and uh, for a while. And I was kind of surprised to find out just before we got on that you're actually not a lawyer. I mean, even though you teach lawyers and you you educate lawyers and you your book was published by the American Bar Association so how did you get so good at what you do and how did you get into what you're doing well thank you it's a terrific introduction so it i started when the dinosaurs roamed the earth this was a long time ago there were very few people who thought that Financial issues during the divorce process warranted a little bit more expertise in terms of providing clients with maybe education, the knowledge, and a roadmap for post-divorce. And at that time, there weren't as many different options available in the legal process for people to divorce by. Um, you know, the traditional litigation was the main one. Along the way, grassroots driven, I'm sure, came alternative dispute resolution. And with alternative dispute resolution came the ability to work more cooperatively, more in line with traditional litigators who wanted to expand their practices to include ADR, alternative dispute resolution. And it opened the door for bringing in more kinds of experts into the process to supplement the legal strategy and to help the attorneys focus on what they do best and allow the others to do what they do best. So you, it sounds like you're very active in the whole collaborative divorce world, which I'm finding is not as big as it should be, right? I mean, it seems oh, like way too you. many divorces <laughs> end up um, being acrimonious and end up in, in legal fights. So why do you think that is and, and how is that going to change? Well, let me explain it a little bit just to give people the background of what it is. So many people know of mediation, which is a neutral facilitator. Typically, an attorney works with both the spouses. And then there's traditional litigation, which each client has their own attorney. Collaborative came about as a hybrid, right? Clients needed legal advice. 
but they also wanted to have a more holistic way of getting divorced, a family-oriented way where their voices were heard at the table, people listened to what their needs were and what their priorities were. And so Collaborative sprung about, and I think it's in the 1970s, believe it or not, with Stu Webb, a long time ago. Its popularity is vastly expanding by now. It's internationally. Mm-hmm. And as a participant in the collaborative process, I'm a financial neutral. I sit at the core of everyone. So I am responsible for all of the gathering of the financial information, all of the financial analysis, all of the option building. And it's a safe, neutral, unbiased place where people can ask any kind of questions until they're fully satisfied. And my game plan is that no one walks away unless they feel fully informed. And that's really the crux of it. So so you actually don't serve as an advocate for any of the uh, any of the parties. No. And that's that's a that's a great place to be. And I would imagine these days, um, as people are realizing just how horribly expensive and horribly painful an acrimonious divorce is, um, business must be um, must be growing in, in that area. Well, I hope so. And this is why it's important to spread the word that there are alternative ways to get divorced. You don't have to be going to court. You don't have to be adversarial. You don't have to you know, pay your very last dollar to get through the process. Collaborative came about because it's grassroots driven. Clients wanted to have a client-centric process. Mm-hmm. And this is one of them. And it may or may not be for everybody, but it's absolutely another tool in your toolkit, right? To show people and talk about it and, and at least inform. Like I said, you you and I seem to be, we're, we're in the same, same space, but mm-hmm. my focus is on couples that are getting divorced at a later age, what I call silver divorce, but many people call it gray divorce. And that's because the stuff I work with are the very complicated assets, the life insurances, the pensions, the real estate, the taxes, to tax issues. And that seems to be more prevalent among older couples. But have you seen your practice shift towards older couples as that, because it seems like they're the ones that maybe need even more help? I think you have your finger on the pulse of it. I mean, this is the segment of the population that has the growing statistics of divorce. For the rest of the population, believe it or not, divorce rate's been pretty stagnant since the 1990s. But this gray divorce segment has just, it's almost doubled since 1990, and they think it's going to triple in another five years. And there's a lot of reasons for it. And you, you must see them as well. And it's true. Late life divorce is much more complicated. They have very unique issues that you don't see in earlier, you know, younger aged couples. And it is complicated for us to address and build options around. When you're dealing with those older couples, what do you see as kind of like the big surprises, the big, uh, you know, gotchas, the, uh, oh my God, I didn't know this was going to happen, or I didn't know how to deal with this? I bet you can guess the easy one. (laughs) The first one is, how long do I have to pay alimony or spousal support? Or of course, I'm going to receive lifetime spousal support, depending on whose chair you're sitting in, right? And I think one of the biggest surprises about that is alimony is not a guaranteed entitlement. It's subject mm-hmm. to different factors in different states, even though you have a long-term marriage. And many of these late life divorces, by the way, are first-time marriages that are like longer than 25 years. 
So you would suspect by a rule of thumb that you get alimony for half the number of years you've been married. But if you're 60 and you're retiring at 66, you don't have half the number of years of your marriage. So I think that's one of the biggest surprises people face. Like what happens when I don't have support coming to me? Cash flow becomes really a big issue in these cases. Well, I mean, to, from my perspective, cash flow is what it's all about. I mean, it's really a question of the couple is living on all of their assets and they've got cash coming in and liabilities and cash going out. And now you've got to break that couple into two. And I mean, the way I look at it is it's it's almost like a it's a demo. It's like if you, you've got your financial house that you've been living in with a couple, but now you've got to demo the house and create two smaller houses that both couples can uh, can live in. And uh, you use the term, what'd you say? Don't cut what you can untie. I mean, the way that I think hope. of it is, is you, yeah. if you're going to be doing a demo of your financial house, you don't want to be destroying the plumbing and you're going to want to be, you know, being careful about taking that wood and rebuilding your the the two houses with what you what you started with. So not to be so dark <laughs> and that we're destroying the house. But to put it a different way, perhaps, you're right. Many people are surprised about cash flow. And that also is the flip side of the coin of how much will it cost me to live? And and you'd be surprised how few people can nail that off the top of their heads. They're like, what? Most people underestimate it by a lot. So the fact that you lose cash flow, you don't know what it's going to cost you to live. And you have finite assets because you're probably at your peak of earning and you're not going to be saving that much more because you're just about to go into retirement is a really big wall for these people to hit when they first sit down at the table to divorce. And so well, those are your financial surprises that are not always so pleasant. Well, yes. And not only that, but a lot of these assets that you're dividing at that point are assets that produce income. And you know, have cash flow components. And sometimes those cash flow components are negative, they're liabilities, and sometimes they're positive. I mean, the pensions, the annuities, the insurances, very complicated assets and very cash flow intensive. And almost sounds like you've got to be a little bit of a kind of an amateur actuary for, for what you do. I wish I could aspire to being what you are, but let me say it this way very carefully, we go through the character of the assets. There are always pros and cons to each class of assets. Some people like risk. Some people would rather have a guaranteed stream of income. Some assets are not transferable. Some assets you can't touch for another 10 years, private equity. There are all kinds of bells and whistles attached to different kinds of assets. We go through that extraordinarily carefully. And that is part of the education of the process. That is part of helping the individual who may not be the employee that accrued all of those awards and benefits, and it may be the less experienced financial spouse in addition to that. And actually, you'd be a little surprised working with many executives and, and CEOs of companies. They actually often do not know the full scope of their entitlements and perquisites, and it's almost a learning experience for them as well to go through this. And you're, you are correct. We have to really, I would say, carefully pull each thread to make sure a person or part of the couple understands what they're getting into. 
both the short and the longer term implications of it. So before we get into some of the real, you know, nitty gritty, because I do want to get into some of the nitty gritty, because again, my audience tends to be the advisors who look for some, you know, real, you know, sometimes technical, sometimes just conceptual insights. But before we get there, talking about silver divorce, we or gray divorce, it's it is growing tremendously. Why do you? Th- what are some of the factors that you think are fueling that increase in uh, elder divorce? I think you're going to be a little surprised. Nothing different than anyone else's divorce. It's all related to the marital past. Lack of communication, lack of shared values, wishing for a more fulfilled life. And I think in part, it's driven by longevity. People are living longer. They're living healthier. Maybe they stayed together for the sake of having their children become young adults. But it's the same sense of seeking satisfaction, seeking a happier way to be. And surprisingly, maybe to you, more women than men initiate divorce in late life. Interesting. So I guess my simplistic view was, well, there's been this pandemic and, um, you know, COVID came, shut everybody in. And I guess my sense is, you know, a couple gets shut in and back in early 2020, either they're going to get very, very close or they're going to say, that's it. I can't, I can't. (laughs) So was, was COVID or the pandemic something that triggered a a big uptick in your business? I'm going to share with you an interesting story. So I wrote an article saying that COVID brought about a tsunami of divorce. And then the very next day came out a study that said, gosh, the divorce rate has really dropped through the floor. Nobody's getting divorced through COVID. Isn't that interesting? So I picked up the phone and I called the editors of the article. And it turns out what they did is they went to the courts to see the filings of divorce. Now, keep in mind, courts were closed for 10 months. Right. (laughs) And I said, did that occur to you that that might be a reason why there were no filings? And they were like flummoxed. They went, oh. So, yes, I think to your point, if there are tensions in any relationship, they were vastly exasperated by the pandemic. And I think that is one of the main reasons why ADR took off, because you couldn't go to court. You couldn't file motions. You couldn't Uh get out of my house. You couldn't do anything other than go through either mediation or collaborative, because there is no court filing at the outset. But aren't there also other other life events that maybe happen at the same time? You know, the kids go off to college and you, you know, now you've got an empty house and, you know, you were you were married because you wanted to raise your kids and send them off. Now your job is done. And there's I mean, just a reassessment. Is, uh, I, I think that's what people were thinking for the most part. And it's been proven wrong. I mean, it really comes around communication, a lack of intimacy, unresolved issues, conflicts over money. Those were all the top factors. Children leaving the nest and becoming an empty nester didn't really even hit the top nine. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So getting into the um, uh, silver divorce, I mean, you prefer the the term, I prefer the term silver divorce because that's on... And that's how I'm pitching. So if you don't mind, we can talk about silver divorce. Okay. But one of the things that I've noticed about, you know, our, my clients is that in silver divorce, one of the most 
confounding and complicating factors is when the period of marriage is just not as long as the period over which many of these assets are accumulating, the house, the pensions, the so forth. So you've got a period of marriage, but you've also got a period where both partners before the marriage were accumulating and bringing their own separate assets. So so that whole notion of separate and community property for complicated assets is pretty gnarly, isn't it? So some states recognize separate property, others do not, where they put all of it into the same pot. So I practice mostly in New York and Connecticut, and you could not find two more different states if you tried. So New York has separate and marital property. Connecticut does not. New York has formulas for uh, spousal support as well as child support. Connecticut only has it for child support. So it's state by state specific. If you are in a state where you actually do have premarital assets, savings, um, a 401k, you bought a house before you got married, whatever it be, if you choose to recognize it, then yes, you're involved in tracing monies. You're tracing monies, you're tracing appreciation, you're tracing contributions and withdrawals from those assets to make sure that they may or may not have been commingled and become marital during the marriage. Well, and and then and then you've got qualified retirement plans where which is, you know, governed by a, a whole other section of the of the IRS code which is what is necessary to comply with to have these quadros which um, you know are bandied about by a lot of lawyers, mediators and others without really understanding the nuances that go into a quadro. And, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, the pension rules require a consideration of premarital period and the marital tenure. So do you find yourself getting involved in a lot of explanations about what's separate and what's community when it comes to uh, pensions and 401ks? Easy answer is yes. On pensions in particular, you will have a coverture factor, which is really a ratio, right? It's marriage over the days that you've been employed and earned and vested in that pension. And that that ratio will determine the percentage that is marital and then divided with the other non-employee spouse. The interesting thing about qualified domestic relations orders, quadros, is that not only do you have to do the calculation on the asset itself, but you also then have to explain what is a separate interest and what's a shared interest to then take of that asset and explain that whole basis to each client. And many times, much to the surprise of attorneys, I would say they don't know either. And it comes down to the fact that really drafting quadros for complicated assets is a specialist in and of themselves. And there are many attorneys who specialize in quadros. The other part to that, which is a little bit more complicated, is that quadros are executed once the judgment, the divorce judgment becomes certified. You need to have that in your hand in order to then file a certified quadro with the courts. So it's after the clients are divorced. Well, the attorneys are long out of the picture. Right. So, so if something goes wrong, you have to stir the pot all over again with just the clients. And there you've got a third party involved, which is the plan sponsor and the plan administrator and the plan. And, you know, again, this is where I practice for, for almost 40 years. And plan sponsors have to be extremely careful that they don't 
start to spend, pet, send money that was set aside for the, quote, exclusive benefit of plan participants, and quadros are an exception to that. A qualified pension plan cannot pay to anybody other than a plan participant except in the case of a quadro. I mean, there, there are some other very, very, very limited exceptions, but it's an exception to that rule. And consequently, you've got to deal with a plan administrators and plan sponsors to make sure that they don't put their plan at risk. And that, uh, in my experience, is a very, very challenging exercise. I have a question for you, Pete. How many do you think are going to explode by the time the person goes to draw on their pension? Well, that's a very important question. So, and and this is where, again, I'm just talking about the folks I deal with. A lot of them are already in pay status and getting and, and filing a quadro and getting a quadro ex, uh, accepted by a plan administrator after a pension has gone into pay status is a very, very challenging. Not all of them allow that. Is that correct? Not all, not all companies will allow that to happen. Actually, they have to allow it to happen because, you know, the, I mean, the quadro, you know, every, every plan sponsor and there has to have a set of quadro procedures and those quadro procedures can, can vary somewhat from, you know, you know, plan to plan. So the plan administrator has some very, very limited flexibility in establishing quadro procedures, but once they're established, they're carved in stone and the administrator must adhere to them. And, uh, you know, we have a, we used to have a joke at Towers Watson where I used to work where, you know, one actuary would ask another, have you ever seen a quadro that didn't have to get sent back to the judge for correction? And the answer is no. <laughs> no understand. quadro is, is, is approved. I mean, I don't know what your experience is, but um, you probably had many, many clients have to get their quadro corrected. Well, that's, that's why it's really, it's just waiting to happen, in my opinion. There's so many people that are not yet at retirement, but coming up to retirement, relying on quadros and hoping and keeping fingers crossed, they're all going to work the way they should be working. Yes. And and so this this is this is why I recommend against quadros. I think there are better ways to uh, divide up the value, even if it's just one of the, you know, one of the couple is earning pensions, you know, it's just like anything else that they earn. It's a salary that they're earning and that's community or that's a, that's a shared thing. So what, and this is deferred compensation essentially. And, and, but it's, it's, a, it's earned by and large during the marriage. Now, again, some of it might be earned before the marriage starts and some of it during the marriage and maybe even some of it in between marriages, because sometimes you're going to have Somebody that um, earns a little pension, leaves the 401k in place, gets married, and then gets divorced. And maybe there's a quadro already, or maybe not. And then they come back, get remarried. And I mean, you can have very, very complicated employment and marital histories that particularly when you're dealing with older couples who live a pretty long life already. And, um, and, and to your point, thank you for saying this. This is why financial experts are needed in the process, especially in silver divorce. Yes. Because not only of the character of the assets, it's the entire transaction of the assets. 
that has to be really done extremely carefully. Now, and again, just kind of sharing my my experience is that lawyers are kind of ill-equipped for that because what happens, let's say you got, let's say a couple has, uh, doesn't want to go through a quadro and that maybe the, the uh, you know, the one spouse has, has earned some, some pensions on and off throughout the marriage. And what you can do is just consider that asset as a marital asset or an asset that has some separate property and some community property. But then you need to have somebody calculate what is that amount? What is that asset? What is that pension worth? And in today's dollars. In today's dollars. Exactly. exactly. That essentially is present value. What is the present value mm -hmm. of those few, that future income stream and how much of that present value is community property and how much of it is separate. But once you have that number, once you can, and that's why I think quadros are a really bad idea, because if you've got a situation like that, you know, it seems to me that the couple should sit down, agree on how the value of that asset, that future cash flow is going to be determined, and then find a way to trade. Okay, you take the pension and I'll take the house, or I'll take. So, so I'll Pete, take... I'm going to play devil's advocate with you before sure. we, um, you know, sure. create unemployment among quadro attorneys here. Again, going to the character of the assets, it works if you have other assets to offset. Number one, some people. Yes. Number two, a pension. Don't forget, is guaranteed income for lifetime. Mm -hmm. You can't get that in any other asset. So there's some really important characteristics that perhaps appeal more than just the dollar value to a person, right? Okay, so so since we're having a point counterpoint, <laughs> let me let me point out something else that okay. is also um, a, a part of the quadro rules. A quadro can never provide an optional form of benefit that was not available to the participant Correct. on the day they got divorced. Now consider consider a participant that has already started receiving benefits. And let's mm -hmm. say for the you know for argument's sake that those benefits are being received as a life annuity so spouse a is getting a life annuity from a defined benefit pension plan now you get a quadro okay and let's say the the spouse the other spouse is entitled to half of that but they're not entitled to that half for their lifetime you can never take you can't even convert it actuarially to a life income for the for the alternative payee that the only thing that alternate payee can get is half of the pension for as long as their ex lives right and so it puts the couple in an interesting position maybe a good <laughs> position where where the ex the ex spouse needs to be very very interested in the continued well-being and long life of but, uh, you know you bring up another point which is unusual very unusual among spouses getting divorced, but I have had in certain instances where a spouse actually had terminal cancer and he chose the joint life survivor benefit, taking a lesser payout so that his ex-spouse could receive over her lifetime. And that, that's but that, very that unusual. Is, and maybe even unusual in, in the goodwill it shows between the yes. spouses, because yes. I mean, what I've seen among clients and friends is that that goodwill is only a very temporary and 
sometimes uh, depreciating commodity. This is that's not something, this is outside it's of my, my competence, but how do you maintain the goodwill necessary between divorcing couples to to make that happen? Because that's a rational, that's a logical choice to, to elect the joint survivor so that your your actions take it. It doesn't happen often. But I will say the alternative dispute resolution processes aim to bring more of that holistic, thoughtful approach to divorce than the adversarial, you know, burn down your house kind of approach, right? Right, right. Well, this is this is I tell you, if 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 we could find a way to help couples make peace and peacefully uh, settle their disputes. Um, it might make some of the lawyers less less well off, but I think in general that would be a good thing for everybody. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, there's. I I don't really see where they might be at risk of losing money if more people want to do something a different way. They're still involved. They. I mean, divorce is a legal process. It's not a financial one. It ought to be, but it's not. We right. don't bring them over the finish line. So I think we are very much needed. I think attorneys are very much needed. And I think that grassroots will continue to drive positive changes through the process for those who are seeking it. Well, yes. I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you 100%. Lawyers need to be part of this process because they can't, you can't implement any of these, even, even the thing I said, where you kind of do a trade-off between, between the pensions and some other assets. You can't make that happen without without attorneys who are on board. But it sounds like you work nationally. You work all over the place. I mean, I just work here in California. So I, that's fortunately, the family law is complicated enough in one state. But how do you manage to keep all of those rules? Well, usually when I'm brought into different cases, although an exception is California, because I've done a couple of California cases, usually I'm brought in because the marital property is so complicated or has so many nuances to it, or there is such a power imbalance between the spouses that they really need someone to sit center and, and either hold a hand or keep the other person patient, right? Keep them in the game. So I'm not necessarily producing the uh, legal reports for the court as I would in Connecticut and New York, um, although I did in Connecticut, I mean, in California, excuse me, but I'm there really focused discreetly on the financial piece of it of helping walk the clients through it. Now, um, one of the things that I've, I've become more sensitive to over the last few years is how difficult it sometimes is to get historical financial information. And then you need forensic accountants. So do you, uh, you must work with a lot of forensic accountants on some of that historic, that financial archeology span that's often required. So I myself, I'm a master analyst in financial forensics. Oh, really? And, um, wow. Yeah. And I thought that would be a great um, added tool in my toolkit. And it has proven to be exactly for what you're saying. Tracing monies, finding out where accounts went, looking at you know historic data as best we can secure it, and giving, I think, peace of mind for what the history was to right. people. Right. I mean, times they don't remember, they have suspicions and it drives the divorce process sideways until they actually know the facts. Well, and again, to put in a little bit of a pitch for forensic accountants, for good for forensic accountants, because, you know, forensic accounting, I think there's this this um, 
kind of feeling that, oh, they're just out there to find out if the if my ex is hiding money. But that's really not what a good forensic accountant yeah. does. A good exactly. forensic accountant kind of, you know, reconstructs the whole development of the of the marital balance sheet. And um, I think that, you know, a good one is just worth their weight in gold. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, and I agree. And often, you know, that's that is actually the first question out of a lot of people's mouths. You know, we've been married a very long time. I don't know how long my spouse has been premeditating divorce or I really haven't been involved with the finances. I kind of like to know what happened over the last 20 years. And those who are more suspicious will say, I'm positive they're hiding assets. I'm just positive. So you're trying to balance all the inflows with the outflows to demonstrate. It would be extremely difficult to peel off millions of dollars that you suspect from a salary of 300K. <laughs> it's like, right. you know, I mean, there, you, there's a little bit of an, a mismatched expectation of, I think he's hiding money with cost benefit analysis of what are we really looking for? And don't get me wrong. There are many instances where it is absolutely warranted and interesting to find. Yep. There's a lot of assets that didn't hit the table quite here. So, you know, right. you just have to know what to look for to get the validation to go after something. Right. Well, we're, we're just about out of time. And I, I so I, but I wanted to end by yeah. asking you, how can we make it uh, you know, change the tenor because again, there's so much acrimony, there's so much fighting. What what do you think you know professionals like us can do to help the I, world become a little bit kinder when it comes I think, to this? I think people enter into this process with an enormous amount of anxiety and fear. Mm. If we as advisors can help them to prepare and better understand their financial circumstances. They will be less scared finding out later what it is. Mm -hmm. And all kinds of different pieces fly to that. So if we can help them prepare, tell them what it costs them to live, show them what assets are, explain what the debts are, help them gather their financial information, understand it, and then set reasonable expectations that if you have a pot of money, what do you think is fair to how to share it? If you have these kinds of expenses, who do you think should be responsible for them? Start the conversation so that they come into this process not being completely blindsided by their own ignorance and lack of preparation. Right. So it's it's really a question of combating fear and distrust or fear because the from the fear comes the distrust and um and I, and I I think I agree a hundred percent that it's all about helping people be less afraid, and how you get people less afraid is share more knowledge and explain to them that it's it's bad, but it's not maybe as bad as you thought it was going to be. So, exactly right. And and I think with that, I think I think we're out of time. And um, thank Lily, thank you so much for 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 being on the show. You've, you've shared an incredible amount of information and I wish you were doing more in California. I mean, it's- um... <laughs> Just call me. <laughs> All right. Thank you, this was really fun. I'm sure we could have talked for another five hours. <laughs> right. right. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, Thank you for both. This is amazing. Yes, Lily, I'm a long-term fan of yours. Money and Divorce is an amazing book and 
Peter New Earth, you are doing amazing work. So I'm glad you guys connected to share this fantastic information on silver divorce, how to simplify a painful process. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, producer of the show on the Incandescent Radio Network and Incandescent TV. Really, I have no doubt that you will be part of this in the future. So thank you all. Even though my idea is never cut what you can untie, clearly that's not true for everyone. But, you know, I'm Tinkerbell, so I still believe in it. <laughs> thank you all. Be well. We'll talk to you soon.